Amen. Good to see all of you. Thank you, Mitch. Um, welcome to Mountain View Church, where our love for God leads us to love our world. I don't know about you, but I notice when I'm singing, the acoustics are really good here. You can hear yourself. That may be good or bad. <laughs> but anyway, you can. And, and as we were singing these songs, uh, Mitch set us up, set me up well, because the, the first song, you know, really talks about the battle, and the second song talks about the grief and the mourning. And have you ever noticed that that's, that tends to be true? When you're in battle, when you're fighting for something, victory is what we all want to achieve, but victory always comes with a cost. Um, part of that is what I experienced when I got up this morning. I thought, oh, I remembered when I injured that. Oh, I remember when I injured that. Oh, I'm kind of sore this morning. Oh, stretch it out, right? Because of the times that I made sacrifices, usually, hopefully, for victory, and, and then it hurts later. How about the teams, even professional teams? They lose teammates, get injured, and are out as they're fighting for victory. So they win the game, but they lose the teammate. But here's where it's most stark. And few people, I know a few have, but a few people in our room, I think, have experienced this. And I want you to understand, um, what is it like to win a military victory and have your best friend killed beside you? What does that feel like? And that's, that's what happens, because you think about it, in every military victory, somebody dies. And so on one side, you have somebody weeping for joy, and on the other side, you have somebody weeping in pain and sorrow. That's what I call grief and victory. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in David's life. We're continuing our series, Decisions That Nearly Destroyed David. Just a quick backdrop here is, remember, David made descending decisions. He made one bad decision after another bad decision after another bad decision. And next thing you know, it culminated in David having an adulterous relationship with a lady named Bathsheba. And then he tries to cover it up by orchestrating the death of her husband. And Nathan prophesies that there will be discipline for his behavior, but also there will be natural consequences for what he has done. And so what, what plays out in his life is, is pretty, pretty awful. Um, and it culminates at this point with his son, Absalom, seeking to destroy him and take his throne. And so in the last couple installments on our series, we've seen that he has chased David from his beloved Jerusalem, and David is in trouble. And last time, as we looked at it, we looked at, there were two counselors, remember, Hushai was David's friend who he was praying for, and Ahithophel was the man that was the most trusted counselor in Israel, and they're fighting over the discussion, what they're going to have Absalom do. And unfortunately, by God's grace, Hushai wins the battle. And so Absalom listens to him, because he flatters him, and he gets this huge army together, which buys David time to prepare for war, prepare for the battle that they're going to have between each other. And it sets up the stage for this battle. And Absalom, who has no experience as a commander, is going to lead it with his cousin Amasa, who has no experience as a commander. And they're marching out with this large conscripted army that they don't have a lot of control over. And the stage is set for David to fight. And so that's where we pick it up. And what we're going to see, basically, is that David defeats Absalom. That's what this is about today. But before we move into it, I want to encourage you to read ahead. Um, the next installment will be 2 Samuel 19. And uh, we're going to call it the return of the king. But the basic idea is here is David has to come back. Have you ever had to come back from adversity? Have you ever had to come back from a difficult time? Have you ever had to return? That's what's going to happen here. So we're looking at David um, returning. 
Next week, um, and we have something interesting that's happened is this week we were supposed to go on our annual pastor's planning retreat, but we essentially got snowed out. So we're going to postpone it to the following week. Well, what we typically do is we have a testimony or a guest speaker when we go. So we're going to have the testimony or guest speaker the week before. You follow me? That means next week we have a guest speaker. So our guest speaker, somebody I'm really excited about, and many of you know her, is Kim Sorale. She is a gifted Christian counselor and communicator and teacher who um, has been part of our church in the past and is a personal friend. And uh, I just, I have a lot of, you know, respect for her. And I've asked her to come and speak about some of the stress we're going through from a Christian perspective. It's been a stressful time. So I thought it'd be good to kind of get some perspective there. So she's going to come and speak. So we'll have a special guest next week, okay? And then the following week, we'll be back on track again. But let's jump into what we have today. Um, David defeats Absalom. And last week, remember, I had all those different points, you know. This week, there's only two. This week's a lot more simple. First of all, um, Absalom is killed. And second, David mourns the death of Absalom. That's pretty much what we're talking about today. So Absalom is killed. It's a, an, it's a very long chapter, though. Um, it takes 18 verses to talk about how he's killed. And so uh, I'm just going to give you an overview. I'm not going to read it all today. We'll read some of the highlights as we go along, and I'll narrate it. What happens, first of all, is we see David kind of snaps out of his sorrow, and he gets fired up, and he becomes the old commander-in-chief, and he takes charge, and he gets all of his people together. And we see some leadership things, you know, and some of you, especially that are in leadership roles, we always are learning leadership things from David. He, he divides his men into three groups. He gives, he gives three generals a third of the command. And the first two generals are going to be the guys that we're familiar with, his two nephews, Joab and Abishai, their brothers, and they're his nephews, and they're his main generals. But then he adds another guy called Itay the Gittite, whom we met last week. And Itay the Gittite is a foreigner. He's not an Israelite. But he has expressed his love for God and his commitment to David. And David discerns ability and skill and commitment in this man, and he believes in him, and he raises him, and his potential rises. That's good leadership. When you're able to discern somebody and you say, this person's loyal and they're skilled, I'm going to use them. I'm going to give them an opportunity and see how they do. And then the person rises and becomes a strong leader. David was able to do that with people. He, he had that ability. And so he brings this out of him. And he gets his guys together. And then what he does is as they're, uh, as they're all together, he says to them, you know what? I myself will go out with you. He's fired up. I'm coming, guys. You know, well, he's you know, now probably in his mid to late 50s. And I have a feeling he's a little paunchy, you know, a little stiff in the joints. And he says, I'm, I'm going to come. I'm going to do it. And uh, the other guys are just as emphatic. No, you're not. And this is what they say. They say, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us died, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. 10,000 was the basic size of an army. So what they're saying is, you are more important than the army. And it's really interesting, because you may remember last week, Ahithophel, the counselor, said, if we just kill David, we cut off the, we cut off the snake's head, it's over. So all they want is David. They don't know this, but providentially they play in and they say, David, don't go out because you're just going to be sitting duck. And David, again, shows great leadership ability. He listens to the people that he's, you know, he's the superior. These are his men. And he listens to them. And he says, okay, I want to go out, but it makes sense. And so he humbles himself and he says, I'll stay back. So he stays in Mahanam, which is the fortress city that they're using. Um, 
This is all, yeah, we don't have a map here. It'd be kind of cool, but this is all um, in Israel. So there's, there's the Jordan River, and east of the Jordan River and all around there is desert. I've, been, I've driven down there. It's just like barren. It's just all brown and desert and these cliffs in the background. And this is where this is. And Mahanaim is like a little oasis in this one area. And there's some wooded areas that we're going to talk about. But a lot of it is, is you know, they're over in this oasis area. And David's going to stay at the city. And if they have any problems, they're going to come up on the phone and say, Hey, David, this is what we need. Right? It seems like that's what they should do, but they don't have phones. They, don't, they can't even SOS, right? You know, they can't do Morse code. They have to send runners. But they will send runners to David and they'll say, hey, David, we need more men. Hey, David, we, we need advice. What do you think we should do in this situation? Hey, David, we need more equipment. So David is going to man the fort. And it's all set up, all ready to go. And as they leave, David is cheering them on. You can do it. Go, guys. Go. Do it. Do it. Do it. You're just a really good king and general again. But then when the three generals come by, he changes his demeanor. And listen to what he says. He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Do you think he still loved his boy? Even though his boy was wayward, even though his boy was trying to kill him, he still loved his son. And when he says deal gently, To understand what he's saying, the Hebrew word is really hard to translate into English for deal gently. And what it essentially means is, don't be hasty, go slowly. David was practical enough to know that it was likely his son would be killed in battle. But what he's saying is, don't be hasty to do it. Don't get out of control. Just take your time and evaluate the situation. If there's any possible situation where we could, I could meet with my son again and we reconcile, please make that possible. If not, I understand. We're warfare. But, but do what you can. That's what he's saying. And he calls him the young man. And he's not a young man anymore. But when you're a dad or mom, your kids are always young to you. This is his baby. And so they go off to fight, and they fight in the, the forest of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is another area, it's interesting, but the Ephraimites apparently had moved into the forest area because there's a beautiful forest area here. As I said, most of it is pretty dry, but there's this dense forest area, and a lot of them were you know, moving around, taking up real estate in that area, so they called it the Forest of Ephraim. And this is where David's men want them to fight. They get them to go there. Why would that be? Because it's extremely difficult to fight in a forest. And the bigger your army is, the more difficult it is because you get separated from one another. And David's men are professional soldiers, and they're expert at guerrilla warfare. And Absalom's men have never fought together on this level before, and they've never fought in the forest. And that's right where David wants them. And the passage says that more men were killed by the forest than they were by other men. And it's probably kind of an exaggeration, but the point is, is that a lot of people were being killed by the forest. And he said, that sounds weird. How does that happen? What you do is you go back and you read about the last military campaigns between General Grant and General Lee in the American Civil War, and you'll see what happened. When you have trees that are really close together, they're unmanaged, and they're all interwoven and everything, and they don't have beetle bark and and all that like today. These are healthy trees, but they're all interwoven together. What happens? You're running fast, and all of a sudden, bingo, hits you in the head, you're down, knocks you out, could decapitate you could impale you. That's what was happening. 
And so they were, they were fighting and they were just getting all tangled up. They're just all tangled up in all this forest. And they're, they're battling this on and David fighting them and David's men, David's men prevail. They not only prevail, they rout them. They kill 20,000 men. Um, and and, and they, they've essentially won the battle. But at the end of the day, you've got to get the king, just like the game of chess. Got to take out the king. And so here comes the king. He's saying he's the king, Absalom. And Absalom is sort of a comical, tragic figure, really. You know, he's this tall, handsome guy with a six-pack, you know, and, and this long, beautiful hair that he does commercials for, for Jerusalem TV. And he's, you know, he's just like, you know, this pretty boy who's probably never had any physical, you know, interaction with him before, probably never fought or, you know, or anything, but he's, he's got all the looks and he's riding up. And this is even funny to me. He's riding up on a mule. So he's riding on the mule, looking like the king, all dressed up in battle. And in those days they used the mule because they didn't have as many horses and the mule was the main mount that they would use. So it's not really a put down or anything, but that was what he was riding. And he's maneuvering his way through the forest. And all of a sudden it says his head got caught in all the trees the word is really head, but it could refer to hair. We don't know exactly what happened. He could have actually gotten caught in this, probably got just tangled up. His upper body got tangled up, and he just couldn't get, at, get loose. But his hair apparently got caught up in the midst of it. And it's ironic because that which he was most proud of was the main thing that tangled him up. His hair got all tangled up, and he couldn't cut it loose. He couldn't get up to it. And he's hanging there, and all of a sudden his mule runs out from under him, and he's just hanging there. And it's been said that when he lost his mount, he lost his kingdom because there's nothing he could do anymore. And so a guy comes along and he, he sees him hanging there. Literally, it says he sees him hanging between heaven and earth, between life and death. And he's just hanging there. And so what does he do? He's a soldier. He goes back and he finds his general, Joab. And he says, I just saw Absalom and he's hanging between heaven and earth. And, Ab- and Joab gets angry at him. He says, why didn't you kill him? If you'd have killed him, I'd give you 10 silvers, you know, uh, you know I'd give you uh, 10 of my silvers, which was, was quite a bit at that time, 10 pieces of silver. He said, no, I'd give you 10 pieces of silver. I'd give you my leather fighting belt. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd give you whatever I could get you to make you, you know, th- this would be a good thing. And, and the guy's kind of surprised. And then he shows character. And, and I think there's a reason why this is written out for us in detail here. We'll see that there's a contrast between his response and later Joab's response. But it's very intriguing what this man says. He says, even if I felt in my hand a weight of 1,000 pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have stood aloof. And what he's saying here is four things. First of all, he's saying, the main reason I'm not going to do it is because of the chain of command. The top of the chain is the king. I'm in a warfare. I've taken an oath that I will follow what my commander says. He's the head man. I'm going to do what he says. I am going to follow the rules here. The second reason, he says, is because he said, do it for my sake. I love my king. I care about him personally, and I care about how much this would hurt him. The third reason why, he says, is because if I did it, he would surely find out. I wouldn't be able to get away with it. And the fourth reason why, and this is very insightful, is 
if I got caught, they would execute me and you wouldn't say a thing. And you know what? That's very true. <laughs> he nailed it on the head. That's the kind of person Joab is. Joab's a very shrewd guy, and he's a complicated man because he's very loyal in many ways to David and to his brother and to himself, but he, he can be very disloyal. And so he calls him on it, and he says, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And so Joab just gets angry, and he says, we've got to take care of this. Before the guy falls down, let's get him. So he runs out to get him. And again, it's complicated. You know, um, We were talking about Clifton. You had said that in some ways Joab is kind of like the chief of staff for the president who has to do all the dirty work. You know, because in a lot of ways, and, and I think that's insightful, because we were talking about it, it, it's complicated because from our perspective as we look at it, Joab, uh, Absalom needed to die. He was a bad guy. He was trying to kill the king. And if he lets him live, then that's going to really complicate matters. And, and, and he was, he's, you have to understand, he's Joab's cousin and he's Joab's neighbor, and Joab has seen him rise from disgrace before. So Joab is you know, genuinely concerned. And I guess he can justify it saying, well, I want to protect David. But still, um, still he's going against what, the king, what David told him to do. And it is going to catch up with him. I, I guarantee you, you will see it will eventually catch up with him the way that he continually disobeys orders. Um, but it, it's more than that. Um, it's really what, what bothers me the most is the way he does it. Joab has four battles, four one-on-one contests in his life. And three of them, he sucker punches the guy. He fights people when they can't fight back. Only one time does he fight a fair fight. And let's just say it doesn't turn out well for him. In this case, he has a man hanging from a tree. You know, cut him down! And say, okay, you and I have something to finish here. And have your battle. David might have been more understanding of that. But instead he says, you can't fight me. I'm going to take you out while you're in, at a disability. And he takes these probably spears, they say a sharp object, and he throws them into his heart while he's just standing there. It's a hanging there. Yeah, I'm going to punish you. There, take that. There, take that. There, take that. And he's still dying. He's not dead. So he says, gets his armor bearers and goes, go finish him off. Just Ruthless. He just, he just loses it. And then after he kills him, he blows his, his ram's horn, the battle's over. And all the Israelites flee and go home. And the men come, and, and the people are even more upset than Joab. Joab actually represents the, the people. That's the other complication here. The people want Absalom dead. I mean, they're thinking, this guy chased us from our homes. This guy got messed up our family. He, he t- tried to take over our kingdom. He tried to take over his own, son, his own king, whom we love. So they take him, and they throw him in a pit, and then they start putting rocks over it, and they build a monument. And it's probably to mock Absalom, because Absalom made a monument to himself earlier. Only two men in history uh, that we know of made monuments to themselves among the Israelites. One was King Saul, and the other was Joab, uh, Absalom. They say Joab or Absalom does. So Absalom... You know, he's vain. I mean, the guy, he's just, it's just amazing. It comes out again and again. He was so into himself, so prideful, thought he had it all under control. Do you see that? He comes in thinking he's better than his dad. He's better than Joab. He's better than everybody else. He's got everything under control. He's the one who's in control. And what happens? And one day he loses it all. And now it's all gone. And he's done. 
So, you know, it, it took me back, I was thinking this situation, it took me back to a story. Years ago, over 40 years ago, and it was January, I was in high school, and our team had the privilege, our wrestling team had the privilege to go to Honolulu to wrestle. Um, we raised up money, we did all the fundraiser stuff. We were in Honolulu, and we're having these different tournaments and mats and stuff. So we're, we're wrestling, and there's this guy there who is this phenomenal middleweight wrestler. And we're all watching him, and we just can't, you know, this guy, he just has charisma, you know, I mean, he's, he's amazing, he's, he's, he's very, very muscular, he's very athletic, um, and he doesn't have a lot of moves, but he just overpowers everybody he wrestles with, and he never seems to break a sweat, and he always has kind of a little smile on his face. He's just kind of calm and cool, and then when he gets off the mat, he has this really cute girlfriend who will go and hold his arm and, and follow him around. And so we were all watching this. We're going, who is this dude? You know, and we're getting a kick out of him. We're all watching him. Every time we'd watch his matches and go, did you see that? Who is this dude? And sooner or later, he has to wrestle our guy. And who he has to wrestle is none other than the legendary and rather eccentric Action Jackson. I think there are 152 pounders. And Action is, is, a, is a character. I mean, he was... He was an interesting dude. And so Jackson tells all of us, he said, and he was a good, very good wrestler. He's one of our best wrestlers. But he, doesn't even, he just says, I've got this, guys. Don't worry about me. This guy doesn't know that many moves. I'm going to beat him. And he went on and on and on telling us. And we said, man, you better be careful. This guy looks good. No, I got him. I got him. So he goes out to wrestle the guy. And he throws every move in the book. And he's tangling his, tangling his body up with his legs. And, all, and, he, and he actually keeps it pretty close. And the guy's kind of befuddled. Like, who is this guy? What's he trying to do? And this goes on for about a round. And then he gets... The guy's down on his hands like this, on his, on his knees and his hands, and, and Jackson's going to knock him down. He can't knock him down because the guy's so strong. So he decides to cross-face him, and that's where you take your arm and you go across the person's face like this. So he goes, bang, and the guy doesn't move. So he goes, bang, the guy doesn't move. So he hits him about ten times. The guy's face is getting red, and it's cut, and they call timeout, and they take the guy up, and they have a, you know, a, uh, you know they check and make sure he's okay, and they're, they're wiping his face and stuff. And Jackson is literally looking up to us in the stands, walking around. I can still see him going, I got this! I got this! Wait now! I've got him! I've got him! And we're just like, oh man, this guy's going to be upset. So now, now it was turn for Jackson to be down on the ground, and the other guy to be up. So this guy cross-faces him. But when he cross-faces him, it was really interesting. He gears up like this, and then he goes, bam! And that's it! He knocked him out! I'm not kidding. He just cooled him. And Jackson's out cold. And they had to bring out smelling salts to wake him up. And, and we're high school guys. We're just rolling on the ground. We're just la- we're laughing at our teammate, you know, because we just think it's so funny. And they have to wake the guy up. And he's wobbling like Patrick Mahomes. They have to walk him off the mat. And that was it. You know, but I think about that. And I, I, I ask this question for you. Do you think you have everything under control? Yeah, you, know, you think you've got the perfect marriage, the perfect family, the perfect job, the perfect church, the perfect life. Get ready because a cross face is probably coming. We have to be so careful. You know, the, the Absalom, he thought he always had it right. He always had to have his way. Are you the guy that always has to, the gal that always has to have their way? Are you comparing yourself? And that's a sinful thing to do, to compare yourself with other people. God's made us all differently. John Adams, fascinating, the great American patriot, I've been reading a book by him, he, he makes the point that he disagrees with Jefferson, where Jefferson says that all men are created equal. He says people are not created equal. 
He says, some people are created bigger and stronger and more athletic. Some people have beautiful voices. Some people are very intelligent more than others. Some people are born into homes where they have advantages that others don't have. He says, it's not that we're created equal, but that we treat each other equally. And one of the problems we have today is that people, you know, think that the whole self-esteem thing, that we are better, you know, just give me a chance. I'm better than anybody else. Everybody wants to be the boss. You can't have everybody as the boss. We have to be honest with what are my strengths and weaknesses? Where do I fit in? How can I support other people around me and above me? How can I consider others more important than myself? But if you get like Absalom and you start feeling like I have to be in control, I have to manipulate and control people and and get them to do what I want. I've got this thing. Next thing you know, you don't. You start thinking about how smart you are all the time, comparing it and bragging about it. Start thinking about, you know, how good looking you are or whatever. You know, watch you young people. Don't pose in front of the mirror. You know what I mean? You can get caught up in that. I, I used to pose in front of the mirror sometimes. Now I run from the baby. You know what I mean? <laughs> so the day will come. The day will come. But, but you know, the thing is, is just don't, you know, be careful not to get too caught up in yourself. The hard thing with this is the people that tend to have these problems don't see they have them. There's this kind of narcissism. They're thinking, oh, yeah, my, my wife's kind of like that. Oh, yeah, my husband's kind of like, oh, my friend is like that. You know, I can see that with him, and yet they're the one. So you got to be careful, too, to watch out for people that are always competing, always have to be number one, always promoting themselves, always feeling like they're the best. Watch out, because they're going to go down, and they could bring you down with them if you get too close. Um, but the best thing you can do is, if, you know, is just ask people. If, that's, if there's anything about that that's true, ask somebody close to you. And do it humbly and be willing to make the changes that, that you need to make. Now, we end on a, on a real sad note, which is that David grieves over his son Absalom's death in verses 19 through 33. And it, there's a side story here that's sort of interesting I, I, I want to share. I'm not going to go into detail with it, but I think it's interesting. Is There's a guy named Ahimaaz. Ahimaaz is the son of Zadok the priest. And he and Jonathan, they're the, sons of the two sons of the two priests. They were working on the espionage team with David. They were working as spies in Jerusalem. And when they passed the information to David, Absalom's coming. They're the ones who came and told him. They ran miles, maybe 100 miles to go tell David, they're coming, they're coming. And then they went and they fought. And when they were done, um, Joab said, I'm going to have to send a runner to go tell David what happened. And he runs up. He goes, I'll go. I'll go. I like to run. And David says, and Joab says, no. And it, it, in the text, it almost sounds like Job is saying this, but it actually is a, an input, insight from the author who says, essentially, the reason Job doesn't want him to go is because he's a good man, and he will think, and he knows him, and he'll think this is all good news, and then he'll find out that it isn't good news. So he says, I don't want him to go. So he picks a Cushite who is um, a foreigner, and that's going to soften the blow a little bit, and he says... You've seen everything that happens? He goes, yes. He goes, go tell the king. So he takes off to tell the king. And after he's gone for a little while, you know, Ahimehaz goes up and says, I can do it. I can do it. Please let me go anyway. Please let me go. And so finally, Joab says, okay, just go. Get out of my hair. Go, go. So he takes off. Well, the Cushite goes over the mountains. He goes a shorter distance, but he's going over the mountains. But but Ahimaaz goes over the plains, which is longer, but is flatter. And Ahimaaz is fast. So 
Rick, this would have been Rick Tussing in the day. You used to be a runner, a long-distance runner. So he, he runs, and he actually runs. I mean, this is a long distance, and he gets in front of him and beats him. Amazing story. And so David and his man, the watchman, is looking at the gates. He says, a man's coming. David says, that's good. If one man's coming, that means that they're not on a full retreat. There's not like 20 guys, so that's probably good news. They probably just, who knows what they want. Two men are coming. Oh, that's probably good news. Um, one of them's a Himaaz. How does he know? He says, I can tell by his running style. How would he know his running style? He had to watch him run a lot, right? Do you think that they had races? Clearly, they had races with each other. They probably had wrestling matches and other things. They, you know, boys are boys. You know, they, were, they were having competition with each other. This is an endorsement for cross-country running. It, is, it just as an aside... You know, sometimes we say, well, does the Bible, is it okay for us to watch sports and, and entertainment and things like that? Well, of course it is. They were, they were doing it. They were competing, and we, we see them competing even later in the New Testament. Paul uses that as illustrations in some of his illustrations, especially in um, 1 Corinthians. So I, I think, you know, it's okay. And, and I'm telling you that as a very practical application because the, the football games are on today. So if you want to watch them, don't feel guilty. Okay, um, but, but getting back to the story, they come in, and, and it's interesting because the first thing Himaz says to David, 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 you know, David, he comes in and he says, Shalom, there's peace. And David says, but what about Absalom, the prince of peace? That's what his name means. And he says, I don't know. So David says, come stand here. Then the Cushite comes in, and David says, what's going on? He says, there's Salam. He says, but what about Absalom? It's really clear in the Hebrew, you know, you just see this play on words. And he says, he's dead. And how does the king feel? Every hope has been banished. And he goes away and he, he makes one of the most famous, gives some of the most famous words ever in a situation like this. He says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Um, this is, this is one of the deepest expressions of grief regarding a father and the death of his son found anywhere in literature. Uh, it's actually used in a famous poem by Lord Byron and in the writings of William Faulkner. Uh, David has reached the zenith of his suffering. All the prophecies from Nathan have come true. His son from Bathsheba has died. His crown prince, his oldest son Amnon, raped his younger sister Tamar and was then killed by a neck and line Absalom. And Absalom has turned against his father. He's slept with his concubines. He's attacked him and tried to destroy his own dad and take his throne away from him. How do he? And now, now he's dead. And he can't, he can't, he, you know, he just kind of wants to talk with them and say, what is this all about? Can't we resolve this in an amicable way? What's going on? Now he can't talk to him. He's dead. And it's all over. One of the reasons I think we sometimes have trouble with the scriptures is we just read it too fast and we don't stop and say, okay, now I'm David. And now I, and especially if you have a kid, one of my kids is Absalom. And stop and think what that feels like. And it doesn't get much worse. And David wanted to die in his place. And, and as he wanted to die in his place, understand that David understands 
that the primary reason that he has his problems is because of his own moral failure. Now, it's not to say that you can be, we've talked about this before, kids have to make their own decisions. So this, the, the testimony of the Bible and history is that in any family, most of the kids, or at least not most of the kids, but you know, a percentage of kids don't turn out well, in a sense. They don't follow the Lord, at least. They may be good kids, but they don't follow the Lord. If that's your own decision, you can't make that decision for them. But when you have moral failure, when you behave as a bad parent, it definitely is destructive to your whole family. And it can have horrible ramifications. It's one of the most unfair things you can do, and David realizes it. I, I think Absalom was not a great guy, okay? I don't think he would have turned out great, and I think it would have been sad if he had become king after David. But I'll tell you this, I think he would have been a better person, and I don't think he would have tried to get his dad's throne. I think things would have been, first gone along peaceably if it hadn't been for what happened with David. And so he's very sad about what happens. Um, this passage is relevant. This passage is relevant for anybody who has lost a loved one. Um, especially, you know, in this case, a son or some, a daughter who dies suddenly or dies in warfare. I think I mentioned it before, but there, one of the worst experiences I ever had in ministry uh, was... There was a couple that I really liked. I actually got to know them better later. He was a distinguished-looking guy and a, and, a, and a very gifted airplane pilot. He was, a, he was a, a pilot with a major airline, and she was a very bright lady and worked with our children's ministry and things. And their son died suddenly at Mammoth in a ski accident with his high school, his Christian high school field trip. And we were among the first to come and talk to them after they got the news. And if I ever felt nauseous or felt like I wanted to vomit in ministry, that was the time. I felt sick to my stomach because of what I observed. I have never seen or felt grief more deeply than that moment. They were different people. They just, they just were beside themselves. I've never seen people suffer so traumatically before. When you have something like this happen to you, it, it just, it's just overwhelming. We had that happen in our own lives. We lost our son. And I remember saying things that are very similar to what Absalom said. You're just kind of speechless. And, and you feel like, I wish I'd die instead of them, even though you know, I hadn't done anything. But, but you just feel that way. And it almost feels like your body's going to explode. But it doesn't. You almost want it to explode. You just can't, you can't phantom the feelings. And this is what he's going through at this time. There's another, there's another aspect to this, and that's the, that's the aspect of the waywardness. Uh, we have a daughter who we're estranged from right now, and the, the pain of that is a different kind of pain. The, the hope is that that will still resolve itself, and that's what we pray for regularly. But here's the deal. David had a wayward son, and the hope was it would resolve itself, and it didn't, and he didn't even get to say goodbye. He didn't even get to say goodbye. He found out later his son had died. And I have had people that I've worked with in ministry. And one of the hardest things is, I, I, the thing that pops in my mind, because it's so common today, is drug addiction. People, by the way, usually start with marijuana. Marijuana's the gate. So marijuana, I, everybody I know that's gone into problems with drug, drug problems say that they were addicted to marijuana. They tell you you can't be addicted to marijuana, but 
The drug addicts I know all say they started being addicted for marijuana, so don't play around with it. Um, I worked in recovery, and I'm just sick and tired of people dying young because they can't kick a habit that started with recreational marijuana when their teachers told them it's not, you know, it's not addictive. Um, and, and then people get in Vicodin, people take opioids, and then it becomes addictive. And then you've got your kid, and, and what are you going to do? If you love your kid, the right thing to do is say, I'm not going to support you in this, and I'm not going to give you all this stuff. You've got to get help. That's the right thing to do because it's the only way they're going to get better. But the risk is that if you do that, if you don't, if you don't do that, if you say, I'm going to support you, you're basically helping them in the crime. But the problem is, is if you do the right thing and they die, you may never see them again. They may go off and die and you may never see them again. Can David, all, what's, what we're seeing here relates to everything with David. Wayward son, somebody who dies suddenly. Death is not a pleasant thing. And for those of you that are young here today, and there's a bunch of people in our church that are young and haven't ever had any grief, never had anybody die, I can guarantee it will happen. I remember the year we got married, we went to seven weddings that year. Everybody we knew was getting married. I think we, we go to way more funerals these days. And that's how it goes. What David does is very common and actually is the most natural thing to do. He mourns and he weeps. What Jesus does, even though he, though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, when Lazarus dies, what does he do? He weeps. So I think the application today is mourn your grief. We'll see, and we'll talk about this in the next installment. David gets almost carried away. He almost loses his focus, and he has to get back. You can't let your grief completely control you, but you do need to grieve. And so what David does, I think, is an example of what Jesus does. He grieves. It's right to grieve when you're going through hard times like this. David, Jesus himself said it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, which we recently studied. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How can you be comforted by people if they don't know you're, mourning, you're in mourning? You've got to tell people. You've got to ask for help. You've got to be humble enough to say, I can't do this on my own. I need help. And so I'd really encourage you to, you know, to humble yourself. I know we had people encircle us when our son died, people that were, they would pray for us. How powerful that was. Um, they, would, they would hug us. I mean, I'm, I, I come from a family of huggers, so I always like hugging, but, but it was a different kind of hug. I mean, it was like people would just hang on and just hold you, and you just felt like, you know, they, it was almost like they were, it was a re, re, regenerative almost. You know, people just, they didn't know what to say. So sometimes they'd just hug you. Um, they would tell you they loved you. They were just simply there. And they would weep. And that was always interesting because people would say, I don't want to go talk to that person because I know I'll just break down. And yet, perhaps one of the most powerful things that anybody did for us was weep. You know, just say, we're hurting for you. And we thought, man, this person's hurting like we're hurting. And so I encourage you, you know, when you go through grief, be prepared. Um, I mean, as best as you can. Let your emotions control it a little bit. Don't be afraid. In our culture, we say don't do that, but, but you, do, you need to grieve. You need to get it out. You need to cry. And then you need other people around you to talk it through. The best thing to work through grief is to talk it through. Get people, in, get connected with small groups and youth group and others. Get people around you you feel you're safe to talk to. It's not everybody, but pick those few people that you can talk it out with. 
Understand that it, as a husband and wife, for example, a boyfriend or girlfriend, you think, oh, this will be good. But if you're both going through grief, you'll go through waves of it at different times. You're not always there for each other. So you need other people around you to support you, to pray for you, um, to care for you as you go through those times. Different people do things, and you know, grief. We have grief in, in different ways, but uh, encourage you to do that. Encourage you to go to counseling. You know, we've gone to counseling. Counseling can be good, and sometimes that's what you need to do, especially when you've gone through something really, really heavy. And and finally, um, I would just say that you know it'd be good to have a counseling group. I, I thought about this. You know, we have a building now. In time. We've had enough people, if we have enough people who have gone through recent losses, we'll get together some people, do a counseling group. Karen, I've done that before and love to do that for you. So let's pray about that and, and do that at some point. But here's the deal. As we summarize this, you know, we, we all want victory, right? But victory always comes with a price. And life on this fallen planet um, is going to be tough. But even entering heaven, you know, the Bible talks about entering heaven, you're going to have to face God initially with your sins. That's why you want to make sure your heart is clean before you go there. Um, and if you get there and you don't know God, it's like time for the detour, right? <laughs> you know, you go back and you're, you're going to hell if you don't know God. So the question we always put before you is, have you admitted that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for his sin and rose from the grave? And have you surrendered your life to follow him? And, and if you haven't, please talk to somebody around you today or us or anybody. Don't leave here before you make that most important decision. And if you have... You know, it is, it is going to be difficult. There's still going to be hardships. But, uh, but we will have victory in the end. And we know that we'll have victory in heaven. And not only will we have victory in heaven, but when we get to heaven, think about this. There will be no more grief with our victory. Let's join in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for David's example. And pray that, uh, and, and for the example of this passage. And pray that you would teach us what, as Mitch said earlier, what we need to learn. And that we could apply it to our lives. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.